Hi, my name is Lynn McTaggart. Welcome to my podcast, Living the New Science. In these podcasts, I'm covering some extraordinary discoveries by frontier scientists and other new thought leaders and why this changes everything we think about how our world works and also how we should live our lives. Welcome and welcome everybody who's listening um, on the webinar and on Facebook. I have a historic chat today with somebody I consider essentially my spiritual older sister. We met, I think about, I'm trying to think about 14 years ago, and I was immediately drawn to this incredible paragon of, of personal development. For anybody who doesn't know her, and I don't know anybody who doesn't know her, Jean Houston essentially invented the personal development movement. Um, mm -hmm. She was back there decades ago working on this. Uh, she founded with her husband a mystery school. She's been studying extended human potential and full human potential for decades. She was a, she lives in a Buckminster Fuller house. She was a friend and advisor to the Clintons. She's written over 60 books. Her latest ones with Anna Luce uh, Smithman are about being a new human. And that's what our conversation is going to be all about. And she's blown me away every time we have a conversation, which I love to have. So welcome, Jean. Welcome. To have you. Thank you. I feel deeply welcomed by you, as I always <laughs> have. <laughs> Great. Fantastic. So let's dive a bit deeper into the whole idea of a new human. So that's really what we're going to be talking now about, because everybody is pretty frightened about what's going on. You know, we're watching the collapse of so many systems that we took for granted for most of our lives. And we're seeing financial crises, we're seeing political crises, we're seeing a crisis in the human spirit, uh, among everything else, the potential of a world war and more. So you and I have been talking about this for a while. We need to evolve. So tell us what you mean by a new human. Well, I think I would best look at an experience of the new human in the past. I mean, if you look at the 14th century in Europe, horrible, horrible century, pandemics, plagues, dreadful people, the breakdown of all the traditional order, followed in the next century by the Renaissance. I love the word in Italian, rinascita, rinascita, utter and complete rebirth on many, 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 many levels. The old forms, particularly of the uh, traditional church were failing. Uh, the modalities of governance failing everywhere, people very sick. And yet here comes new music, here comes new forms of art, here comes extraordinary conceptualizations, not just with people like Leonardo, you know, but with people everywhere, people start rethinking. It's as if there is an arrival of latency. And I think latency is the key term here. Latency that holds the energy, the forms, the designs for emergence. But it seems to take 
the necessity for emergency for emergence to take place. Um, I can think of so many examples through history of this. And why is it that in a time like ours, certainly of emergency on every level, the breakdown invariably allows for the breakthrough of that which has been latent for a long, long time, but which comfortable situations kept sort of in a box of non-becoming. So I, uh, I, I too, like you, am stunned at the sheer volume and creativity <laughs> of the breakdown. The unexpected becomes the expected. The impossible that we thought could never happen becomes the living possible. Are we seeing the emergence of latency? When you look at fossil records, fossils on, on stones or walls, and you see the fossil looks, you know, this year looks the same, 10 years later, the same, 50 years later, it looks like the same, and then suddenly, whoa, it jumps. And it begins to describe in its development uh, very often very creative alternative ways of being, of being seen, and above all, the sheer beauty and complexity of its new becoming. So I'm, uh, you know, there are so many thousands of examples. Mm -hmm. We are in jump time, as I said in one of my books, in which that which is latent has been uh, pushed or evoked or better still loved back into a new order of being. And I, I see this with so many of my uh, re research students and their story, the story over and over again while, you know, crying and carrying on. And then I look at them five years later and something rich and strange has emerged in them. Now, I, I think that there probably are better explanations, but are we essentially systemically latent? You know, so many of the new uh, emerging spiritualities are looking to quantum science, as you know, to, to as the all catchable uh, explanation of how things are. And yet we know that we are universal beings. We are not encapsulated bags of skin dragging around dreary little egos. We are organism, environment, symbiotic with the great unity itself. And uh, so that which you was seen and continues to be seen as a spiritual process is now becoming an existential process. Um, the idea is what, I mean, in your books, for example, you launched a, a movement of latency about as deep and wide far spread as anybody that I know. I mean, I'm, I'm a member of one of these and every Monday night I show up and, and we have our prayers, we have our uh, focus groups and people are, if not getting well, they certainly are getting better. And I mean better in their whole body, mind, systemic. Mm -hmm. uh, in my own small way, I try to do this in my, my seminars, but I'd be interested, especially in light of your new book that's soon to come out, how you regard the latency. I mean, even take a little baby, doesn't look like too much is gonna go on and yet is latent with the, the musician that he or she will be, you know, down the line five or 10 years. Uh, 
I, I think the some of the wilder uh, fields of quantum physics, which perhaps have been overly adopted to explain everything, <laughs> but what quantum physics talks about the the great unity, the great creation that comes out of co-creation, of connection, that everything is connected, but is there in a latent state until there is a sufficiency of need to call it forth. And, uh, you know, all, all my scientific friends who look at quantum physics still try to look at it through the, uh, the, the mysterium tremendum of, um, of, of chemistry or mathematics. And I think they're missing out on a great deal of what is trying to happen. How do you feel about that? No, absolutely. I I love the idea that you say it is a kind of catch-all to try to explain everything. Yes. What the issue, though, is is people haven't really understood the the implications of quantum physics from the start, and also the implications of living the wrong story. I mean, we oh, one of the biggest biggest problems we've had is for 300 plus years now, maybe 400 plus years, we've been living according to a false view of who we really are. You know, we, everything, you know, Joan Didion said, we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Um, but the biggest story that we tell ourselves is a scientific story. And the story we've told ourselves since the, the life of Isaac Newton has been his view of the world, which has been a, a very well-behaved universe of separate objects operating according to fixed laws in time and space. Now, even with the advent of quantum physics, scientists believed there were, there were two sciences. There was the science of the tiny, you know, the quantum world with all this anarchic behavior, you know, non-locality, things no matter how far apart they are, being connected forever through time and space. And the whole idea that quantum, quantum particles aren't even an actual something yet. They're only a potential of something. They're a latency. And what turns that something into something real is the involvement of an observer, is our involvement in making it real. But the problem of our story also is one of not only individualism, which Newton's vision promoted, but also competitive individualism, which was promoted by Charles Darwin. When Darwin came along, you know, very influenced by uh, population explosion ideas of the time, he believed there wasn't enough to go around. So life must proceed through struggle. And so, although they weren't his words, survival of the fittest, they were his PR folks, essentially. Uh, that became essentially the leitmotif of our world. And so we have grown up with the whole concept of competitive individualism throughout our lives, starting in school, starting in universities, starting in relationships and in work environments, et cetera. We're used to, in neighborhoods, it's, we have to have better, we have to have more. And that's that whole idea that's really behind so much of what's breaking down now. So for me, when you talked about the small power of eight groups, which are 
the thing that I've been working on. I've been working on um, group intention, very large and also only groups of eight for many years now, because I became convinced that one of the issues that we really have to change to become new humans, to bring out this latency that you talk about is reestablish community. You know, we human beings need to connect more than they need to eat or breathe. They, you know, all the evidence demonstrates we need to belong as a human species. And the cruelest thing you can do to someone is to isolate them, is to ostracize them. We need to belong more than we need to eat or breathe. And so community, no small wonder, community, small community is so revitalizing, is so healing for us. And as a, a species now, we've experienced more isolation than ever before because of COVID and lockdown and isolation like that. And so many people, so many young people have suffered in particular, but also older people too. So one of the things that I think that has to be your wonderful renaissance is a renaissance of community and these okay. small groups getting together. And it's one thing I find with people who are suffering, I usually say, get into a group. And invariably, as I see in my Power of Eight groups, as I see in, master, in my master classes, I see tens of thousands of Power of Eight groups. People heal. People heal their lives, whether it is their health, their finances, their career, their life purpose changes. So you wrote, you've written two books with Anna Luce Smithman about the new human, the story of Rose being the first one. And you talk about some qualities of the new human. What, what do you see as some of the foremost qualities, Jean? Well, again, the activation of latency, the availability for a depth level seeing and being. The, 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 it's, it's, a, it's also a kind of, uh, I'm gonna say something that's not in the book, but I think it's very important, which is the art and science of manifestation, uh, which has to do with how we turn possibilities into probabilities. But to experience it as a, uh, a, a very natural part of our process. I mean, I, I asked the question, why do things happen? Why do things happen? I mean, I'm not speaking of um, out of the way surprises and the that occasionally and randomly rain on us. I'm referring to ways in which certain probabilities seem to follow us throughout our lives. You see behind me, I hope. Uh, yeah, there she is. My great friend, Margaret Mead. I was sort of the adopted daughter of Margaret Mead. I had, I mean, I had a wonderful mother and she had this tremendously brilliant daughter, uh, Mary Catherine. But she is, was very short and I am really quite tall. She would look up at me and say, you're just like me. And I would look down at her and I'd say, no, Margaret, I'm not at all like you. You are much smarter than I am. I am much nicer than you are. You know. <laughs> One of the things is I noticed the way 
what we would consider creative good fortune. I mean, she was probably one of the most advanced people that I ever know, but creative good fortune would follow her. Um, but what she was doing, and this is also one of the qualities of, of the, that we talk about this higher human being, is that they are called to probability waves. Now for any event we know, there are many possibilities, but the emphasis given to a possibility wave, and it is a wave, increases the likelihood of it becoming a probability wave. And that probability, which you intend, starts happening in space and time. What I find with some of these highly developed people is that they have learned the music of orchestration. They have learned to orchestrate their consciousness in a certain way, a kind of yoga of the mind, you know, or a kind of um, the ability to always see life as flux and that when you alter outcome, you enable outcome to flow as a new and thickened probability wave that, had, that lead to an intended probability by holding onto the possibility as you do in so much of your work, you're propagating quite literally a wave that moves and vibrates and undulates through space. And it would seem also through time. That is time in which past, present and future exist simultaneously. One of the great, great conundrums and marvels of quantum physics, the simultaneity of past, present, future. So when Anna Luce and I were writing about uh, the future human, part of it really, though we didn't necessarily express, I'm trying to express it, the old things in the new ways, came about because of the fact that we have within us um, a wave of probability, of possibility, how to put it, um, enters into time in which past, present, and future exist simultaneously. And according to some of the most recent work in new physics, this wave of possibility is, is, understands that time is not a one-way river, according to quantum principles. And this fact shocks our mind, for we are so conditioned to believe in time's arrow. And so one of the things that I do with my students is to imagine the reality that you intend, that is the thing or occasion that you wish to activate from the great field of all possibility. And that is a possibility wave, but not yet a probability one. So you have to thicken the probability. So I might say to one of my students, please imagine your intention so dramatically that it overrides all your old feelings of doubt and dilemma. And this is really part of the, you know, the higher order thinking. And observe how your active imagination offers you interesting images, feelings, storylines, storylines. It's very important, the new storyline that exceeds old ways of thinking and doing. And then I'll say, let's bring in more of the probability factor. You, I, I do this by telling them, invite the quantum field of all potential to join you in the creation 
of your new intention. Invite it in, call it in, reach out even, uh, <laughs> and bathe in it. Enjoy the paradox. And this is something else about this, this uh, advanced future human. The paradox of being local, but also being non-local. Uh, human and God stuff <laughs> incarnate in space and time. So you are the local imagination immersed in the great field, the great field of imaginal creation. And the universe with its infinite ideas and treasures now is able by your invitation to help you to fill in the gaps as well as expanding your intention. The quantum field in its, in its wonderful dramatizing power arises in you with special effect and soul crafting images and ideas and you receive them and you play with them. Uh, I've been thinking about this since I was seven or eight years old because I met Mr. Einstein. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I know you met many people in your illustrious well, life. One of them was, was, Isaac, uh, was Einstein, because I went to a special school that took us to meet the great elders of the time. Uh, um, so Helen Keller, I met her, was an extraordinary lady. And one day our teacher said, children, we're going to get on the ferry boat, because we lived in New York, and we're going to go to Princeton and meet Albert Einstein. And we did that. And we sat down in this chalk-filled room with equations on the board. And he came in. He was very sweet. He was like, very short, very, but very sweet. And he said, yeah, any questions? <laughs> That's how it began. <laughs> and one of our smart aleck boys raised his hand and said, Mr. Einstein, how can we get to be as smart as you? He said, ah, read fairy tales. We did not like that answer at all. Another smart aleck boy. Well, Mr. Einstein, how can we get to be smarter than you? And he said, ah, read more fairy tales. <laughs> and I hopped up, and I'm seven years old or something. Mr. Einstein, you're talking about imagination, aren't you? Because my father was a comedy writer that involved constant imagination. Yeah, yeah, imagination. Everybody thinks I'm got this big intellect. And think, no, what I got that they don't have is I have imagination. <laughs> imagination. I get on a light beam and I imagine myself going through time and space. Whoosh, you know. And that is my secret. And the, the smart aleck kids still didn't like it, but I held that as my secret sauce, if you will, for the rest of my life. And that to me. You, you not just take an idea, but you play with it. You enact it until you get the, and this is something else that we don't really talk about. I'm, I'm tired of talking about the old stuff. I'd like to talk about the new stuff. You, know, you get the feeling tone about your intention or your idea. Now, feeling tone itself is a special kind of click in your consciousness that says, okay, it's so, it's happening. And you put your hands out and you have the sense of calling it in, winding it in, being entangled with and thus receiving appropriate opportunities, resources, coming to make your intention a reality in your own space-time zone. As it's already been confirmed, if I may dare say, 
as a reality in the zone of the quantum field, you see. So that's, that's what really interests me, uh, that we are, we are beings of universal capacities. We are universal beings in a biodegradable space-time suit. <laughs> and to be able to switch the self-image, <laughs> that's also part of this future human. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Now, I'm also going to ask you just tip your computer down just a little bit so we can see a bit more of your wonderful face. There you go. I know we just lost, we, we had, we were watching Margaret Mead. We had your face, but now we have even more of it. Fabulous. I love all of those ideas and the idea of this imaginal sense of the intention and the intention going through time, you're absolutely right. I mean, no quantum physicist these days believes in linear time. They yes. all say Carlo Rovelli, all of the great modern quantum physicists say there's no such thing as time. And in the brain, there's no place in the brain that understands time. Somebody with amnesia, and here's the other thing too, the same place in the brain that is involved with memory is also involved with imagination so right. and future. So when somebody has amnesia, they have difficulty imagining the future. Now, you're absolutely right. There's so much evidence for intention also working through time and space. And I do, I actually do a course called Heal Your Past that uses retro intention techniques to heal what has happened before, but still exists in that person and still invades him or her, essentially. But this whole idea of imagining and belief, what you're really saying and talking about is, is seeing the future as an absolute inevitability. And one of the things that I know seems to help that a lot is other people. P other people can imagine your future better than you can. And that's certainly one of the things I teach in my courses and also I promote in Power of Eight groups is that what you may not be able to believe yourself, you're filled with all of those 70,000 thoughts you have every day and most of them something like 85% are negative and judgmental, particularly about yourself. But other people can build that belief in you by just the act of intending together. Um, one of the big pieces here that I think is helpful, particularly helpful in creating a new human is altruism. I mean, that's one of the real beauties of a power of eight group because seven-eighths of the time you're intending for someone else. And that I have seen is a complete antidote to this competitive individual um, that we all have become or have been created to, to automatically operate as. But suddenly you break out of that. And I think it's one of the big factors as part of this community that we have to understand. And it's not just about doing nice things for other people, although 
anybody who does that lives a longer, healthier, happier life, according to the science. But it's about <clears throat> really sincerely seeing, as you're talking about, visualizing that other person as achieving their goal, whether it yeah. is to become healthy, whether it is to become uh, financially secure, or to have that dream job, or to find that dream relationship, or whatever. And the meeting together of strangers who start out as strangers in a power of eight group is is one of the important factors because suddenly you have this group of total strangers who are intending for you, who have your back, who care and love you enough to spend this selfless time sending intention to you. That's so antithetical to the way we have been brought up. And it's shockingly effective for that individual. I mean, I have so many people who just burst into tears, whether they're sending or receiving, because they've never experienced this before. They also get into, and I think this is another really important aspect of the new human. You talked about, you know, intention and the fact that we have these latent powers. We do. We have many latent powers. You certainly are the queen of understanding human potential. We have so many powers we're, we're born with, but they get denied We are by our authority figures. They tell us, no, no, that's only your imagination when that is the most important thing, as you said. They say, no, 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 you can't see beyond your senses. You can't intend, that's impossible. You can't manifest, that's impossible. And on and on and on, so we, we, believe that. But we reestablish those powers when we start seeing them work as a group. And I think that is just reclaiming that latent human capacity that we all have, we all have inherently, is really important in the next stage of our evolution. That is so beautifully and succinctly stated. Lately, I've been studying the life of um, Martin Luther King and asking myself, how, <laughs> how, did he, how did he accomplish what was thought to be impossible? And he did it through rhythm mm -hmm. and colorful words spoken mm. to a resonant community, didn't he? Mm -hmm. one that sang and moved and celebrated the events of freedom, regardless of the way the external negative uh, circumstances were going on. And I think that it's interesting, the, the word enthusiasm, which comes from the ancient Greek, entheos iasmos, which really means doing the work of the God. <laughs> entheos iasmos. You, you know, when you work, with a kind of enthusiasm and movement and words that are that sing, you are causing your body and your mind and your very consciousness to slip out of same old, same old, same old thoughts, expectations. You have moved from you have moved from imagination to the imaginal. The imaginal, which of course is part of the universal mind field of all potentialities. 
you have joined a much deeper, richer, funnier, co-creative universe, you know, to speak from, from that perspective. I mean, I go to the great, sometimes a great gospel church, and I watch the momentum of possibility happening through movement, rhythm, singing, uh, and, and which then activates a new order of intention and belief, you see. So it isn't just, I think happy thoughts and good things will happen. No, 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 <laughs> we're too complicated for that. <laughs> Bring in the whole body, mind, overt and subjective ways of being and knowing. And the imagination moves to the imaginal, which is a strange word, which really means the source codes of reality. I use a word to explain that called the entelechy, a word of Aristotle. It is the entelechy of an acorn to be an oak tree. It is the entelechy of a baby to be a grown-up human being. It is the entelechy of you and me to be so much more than we ever thought to be. Entelechy, uh, the uh, enthusiasm, movement, imagery that then takes us to the coded potency that is already there in the fields of our mind and our being to emerge. It was the old, you know, it's got to be kind of overused, but it's the old caterpillar caper, isn't it? You know, yeah. the, the caterpillar just goes along, rum, 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 eating everything in sight until he's ready to burst. And then of course you have the emergence of the butterfly, which we assume is a higher order of being. I'm not sure of that. How do you think we are in the caterpillar caper now? in space and time. Because I think also what you're doing in having created these forums that are universal of people being entheosiasmic enough to make things happen. The caterpillar caper. I love that, the caterpillar caper. Well, I wanna to speak to just your whole idea of rhythm too, because I think yes. that is so important, so vital. Uh, we don't really understand how rhythm and music affects us. And you're talking about Martin Luther King, who understood, like a, a brilliant gospel preacher did, the power of words, the power of rhythmic words to move, the power of passion to move, and the power of oneness. And so one thing I just want to address is I... I see, and we've proved this in brainwave studies that we've done with a bunch of student volunteers who were total novices, that when you put people into small groups, very quickly, when they start sending intention, we put EEG caps. We worked with a team of neuroscientists. And you put EEG caps on them, and very immediately, parts of the brain involved in making us feel separate, like the parietal lobes, which sit back here, and also parts of the frontal lobes, the right frontal lobe that makes us, uh, that is involved in worry, doubt, negativity. All of this is turned way down. So it's not like meditation, it's completely different. And what you see is brainwave signatures almost identical to those of Buddhist monks in ecstatic prayer or Sufi masters during chanting, and also people involved in the um, uh, the ecstatic churches. 
So, you know, where they're all singing and they're dancing and they're involved in this incredible rhythm and it brings them out of themselves into a state of oneness. And in a sense, they suddenly feel, as we never do ordinarily, a sense of oneness, a sense of being in the field, which we are all the time anyway, but we don't experience life like that. So I think that is one important element is getting out of the ordinary state of consciousness into a state of oneness is really powerful. What I see as the caterpillar uh, root right now is, you know, we keep having this idea of change happening from top down. And I have long given up on those people who have the levers of power knowing what they're doing or doing it um, for the common good. We've seen that is definitely not the case. I'm not sure they know what to do. They might be well-intended, but we also have um, what our mutual friend, Marianne Williamson calls corporate tyranny now. You know, we have, we are now involved in the big corporations who are taking over every aspect of our lives. So I see, the impulse has to be for the opposite, has to be changed from the ground up. And like you, I've been reading about Mohandas Gandhi and how did he do it? What did he do to affect this major revolution um, where India was able to very peacefully detach itself from the British empire? How did he do this? And what he did was to work locally. He started with little groups of people and he showed them that if you have micro industries, and in this case, spinning wheels, if you have spinning wheels, you can create a local economy, a local community. You don't need big Britain to run you. And so it was that plus peaceful, nonviolent revolution, but it was revolution. And so, as you say, I've got this little army of change makers out there, tens of thousands of people who are in power of eight groups. And I'm about to call them in and just say, okay, guys, here are some tools for a new world. Because I think what's going to happen, and I'll be announcing that in, in the coming weeks, what's going to happen is I think people will start with little groups of eight. And I've seen this with many of our power of eight groups. They not only start doing intention for themselves, they start doing intention for their community. I've had power of eight groups that did intention to stop the fires in Northern California, and particularly around one person's house, uh, somebody who was part of their group. They imagined a dome being placed over this person's house who was right in the firing line of an oncoming fire in Northern California. They also, they also imagined the firefighters taking shelter inside of her house. And this is exactly what happened, I kid you not. The fire went right around the house, completely avoided it. There was no dust inside and the firemen did use it as a shelter. So I've seen that. I've seen people um, intend for more rain, little groups, and starting to intend for changes, major changes in their community. Um, 
major revolutionary changes. And some of the things that I see are changing the very way that certain things operate, creating partnerships of, say, utility companies, rather than um, utility companies that are based on profit so that they can charge outrageous amounts of money. Um, I see deep changes in the way communities can work. Um, we even have a community in the UK that has its own currency, decided to have its own pound system. We have many communities that operate on bartering systems, uh, operate, they've, they've reconnected people and community together, and they are manifesting amazing things. So I see this as a little ground up revolution. That is the way I think the caterpillar emerges as a butterfly. Do you think in creating, or let's say, helping to actualize these internal creative communities, because obviously they are, they're working with a different day-by-day -day agenda than their usual ones. You, you have helped break up so many of the clusters of sameness or same old, same old with, with, the, uh, with the levels of um, building internal structures that support creative experience. Now, when you're doing, you have done this, but if that is then amplified in world and time, oh my, uh, you then very quickly begin to create a very different order of reality, not unlike what happened in the 15th and 16th century, you know, after the terrible pandemics in, in Europe. Are you aware of just how to the ordinary mind and consciousness, uh, you are one very naughty person. <laughs> <laughs> oh yes, I like being a disruptor. I've been a disruptor for many decades. And I mean, certainly in the health field, et cetera. And I always see that as my role. I think my my ultimate role is a, is a disruptor and an activist. I do. I mean, one of the things we haven't talked about, but I think is really central here. Um, we have learned how to relate to people based on that old scientific model of competitive individualism. So we have to relearn how to see and also how to relate. That is something that I've been, that's been part of my teaching too. It's part of my master class. I spend a lot of time in showing people not just to manifest things, but to manifest better relationships because um, it, our relationships are always based on I win, you lose. And people mm -hmm. don't understand that you can actually use intention to get along with anybody, even people who disagree with everything you stand for. You can use intention to heal negativity around yes. you and in your life. And I think people need to be, this is part of my tools for a new world, is helping people relate in a completely different way. And even seeing, because we don't see, you know, we, we see, you talked about story before, Gene, and it's so interesting we see a tiny, tiny bit of the, the millions of impulses 
and the millions of bits of information that come into a pour into us every day, our eyes, which is they contain the fastest movement in the body, but they can only pick up a tiny fraction of it. And what we pick up is the old story. We pick up the story, you know, we're, we're story makers. We're all story makers. We, we tell ourselves stories in order to live, as we say, but we tell ourselves the old story and we usually see only what supports that story. So we have to learn new ways of seeing that allow in more information and new possibility. And for us in the West, we have to start seeing much more holistically because again, we have been taught to look for the isol isolated individual thing, just like we're, we think we are isolated individuals too. And well, we look for that, you know, I always say, imagine two students in front of the Mona Lisa. One student, the Westerner, sees the face, in fact, the eyes, the very epicenter of the painting, whereas an, an Easterner, somebody from, say, Japan, will take in the whole environment of the painting and the background will be no less important than the, than the foreground because that's what they've been taught. They've been taught to see things in relationship. So that's part of what we also have to learn, what is part of my teaching too, is learning to see in a completely different way. One thing that really intrigues me about what you're saying is because you're also speaking about a conscious shift in one's identity, not the usual uh, ego-bound notion of self, but rather bringing in one of the many selves <laughs> that really accompany us, selves which do not have your particular ego's history of doubt and uh, distress. I, th I think that there is simply a pure, more open and available self within one. And if you then attach that to the pure, more available self community, you are turning the page on history. I mean, I really believe that. I'll give you an example. Um, I do not like to write. In fact, I'm almost phobic for writing. No. Yeah, I am phobic for writing. And yet, I don't know where all these books come from. I'll tell you how they come from. They come from not being, uh, I, not being a writer, but there's something that I love. I am a very good cook. And I love to cook, to keep my Texas father and my Sicilian mother together. Uh, I began to make uh, all kinds of strange variations, you know chicken fried steak polenta and stuff like that. But um, I have no blocks around cooking, none at all. Not for writing. And yet I'm closing in on a whole lot of books having been published. How do I do this? I immerse myself entirely in the persona of a cook. And then you see at the computer, <laughs> I think entirely in cooking images. I stir the sauce that embodies the essence of the book. I add, I add the spices of new and varied associations. I bring the cook's creativity and energy to myself as writer. And so uh, I, I, the way I work with my students is, is I suggest to them, make a list of your other persona personalities with particular skills that you have within you. 
And so if I made a list of myself, it would be teacher, cook, traveler, uh, UN and cultural advisor, uh, good friend, intense dog lover, uh, reader, uh, comedian, people gatherer, uh, dr dramatist, risk taker, occasional shaman, evocateur, um, midwife of souls, social artist. And I asked them to do the same. If I asked you to do that, can you name your persona or some of your persona? Oh, goodness. Um, writer. I, I do like to, I love to write. Um, <clears throat> I was much more of a, re a reluctant speaker. So I had to start imagining myself doing that until I became a good speaker. But that took that took some time. But okay, writer, speaker, uh, wife, uh, mother. Now this year, grandmother. Um, those are really important elements for me. Good friend. Yes, I think I'm a good friend. Um, employer. Uh, activist, disruptor, evocateur also. Um, let's see, gatherer of souls. Mm -hmm. I like to gather people together and I um, change maker, I suppose. Well, let's take two of those, the gatherer of souls and the change maker uh, and, and bring it into the field of your present doing, whether it is changing the nature and the and the sensibility of community, how would you bring these into this next step of, of your professional evolution? Oh boy. Well, I guess, as I say, I Just, already realized I do have that community, but they're all busy setting up different power of eight groups here, there, and everywhere. And so the first thing is to bring them together. So I am inviting them to take advantage of some free tools that I want to give them and inviting them to be part of my community. And we can do all of this virtually, initially. Mm -hmm. um, and a community can then start talking, the groups can start talking to each other and sharing information. And then every so often, I will maybe light another match and, uh, <laughs> and see what happens. And so I think that would probably be it. And I would call them, this is the plan, I would call on them to try something new and call on them to try something else new, where it is a sh not only a sharing of information, but also a, a, a variety of suggestions. Now, if enough people join and you simply say to them today, don't buy anything from X, we're going to show them we don't want that we don't want that, those products anymore, po uh, poisoning the environment. Um, just something like that, for instance, or, hey, today we're going to try this new way of relating to people, or today we're going to try using intention for X or Y and see what happens. And I do that all the time in my courses anyway. I will always say, okay, you're not getting along with this person. Send them loving intention and see what happens to the energy between you. And 
I had a, a, a woman recently, Annette, who tried that with her mother. They always had a terrible relationship. And she'd always believed her mother didn't love her. her. Mother was only 19 when she was born and was overwhelmed. And she did that and it's changed their whole relationship. And the mother thinks it's a miracle and they both come together. And I see that over and over again, just changing the energy, using different techniques like that. But as I say, I think we all have to go through this learning experience of unlearning what we learned, unlearning that story and creating a new one. All right, so the creation of a new story, therein lies the evolution of the world. I mean, I think of it as mythically, as a mythic structure. Um, Joseph Campbell and I were good friends. And we did a lot of work together, except on one thing. He insisted, you know, in his study of the hero's journey, that there was no heroine's journey. Woo! <laughs> I blow up in him regularly. And, uh, you know, because he, he had a very specific notion of what the hero's journey was, and it didn't involve very many feminine principles. And so finally he said, well, you go and write it. <laughs> so, which in my own way, in my own teaching, is something that I do. But this whole idea of becoming the hero or heroine in the great adventure of bringing your ideas, your plans, and yours are deep and vast and potent, uh, you enlarge the story. You consider yourself to be on the road of discovery and, and adventure. You are larger than your ordinary life when you go mythic, you know, and, and, and you accept it. And you also accept the helpers, both natural and supernatural, um, who are there to assist you. And they may show up in interesting forms. You have to expand your level of acceptance here. I mean, uh, animals, mine have often been dogs, you know, angels, numinous borderline persons, and your entelechy, your higher guidance, who is providing, I believe, both direction as well as opening up, opening up pathways to the new possibility. You get beyond the dark woods of unbelief and you enter the shining castles wherein you are recognized as a great one, gifted, gifted with tools, uh, wherein you can accomplish interesting aims. You discover archetypal friends and support systems who can be in the form of whatever, uh, gods, goddesses, legendary figures, powers, archetypal powers of, of, of virtue and intelligence, the archetype of all giving love, uh, the archetype of intelligence and discernment even the archetype of abundance, of healing. I mean, I look at people taking on the persona of archetypes. Archetypes <laughs> are many things. I mean, they are primal forms. They're codings of the deep unconscious. They are constellations of psychic energy. They are patterns of relationship, but they're also symbolic projections of higher consciousness. And they're major organs of the human psyche. They give us our essential connections archetypes to love. And without them, we would, we would lose the gossamer bridge 
that joins spirit with nature, mind with body, and self with the meta body of the universe. So this is what I try to do in some of my work. I enlarge the field of self, not just in terms of the, the simpler ones where we take on some of our, uh, our, our strong capacities like mine is simmering with a soup of new intentions, but, but you also join spirit with nature, mind and body, and as I say, the meta body of the self. So thus in the journey of changing the world, as you have done so brilliantly more than just about anybody I know. I think it's also the journey of transformation and the acquiring of the deeper latent powers that are lying there. And uh, not only do the, we then form, as I try to do, a powerful um, sense of identity with a larger character that is also part of my inner dream and my outer performance. But this mythic being, if you will, this larger storied being becomes an aspect of ourselves writ large. And then what I find is that symbolic happenings appear with, with undisguised relevance, not only for my own life and issue, but for the remaking of society as well therein one becomes, as Gandhi says, one becomes the change that makes the change. I love the idea of the being a mythic, you know, the mythic uh, persona of yourself. So I'm going to take questions, but before I do, who would you say is your mythic persona? What do you see as your, who do you see as your mythic persona? My mythic persona has been for many years the, the Athena archetype. Wonderful. Wonderful. And matter of fact, can explain I tell why, a little story? Explain why to our audience why that is. Why? Why Athena is your archetype. I was not wanted as a, when my mother was pregnant with me. My father was broke. He had been thrown off the Bob Hope show, something like that for his usual hijinks. And he kept saying to my mother, Mary, get rid of the kid. You can have as many kids as you like when I get back on writing the Bob Hope show. My mother being a Sicilian Catholic, that didn't go over very well. And the same dream began to occur to her almost every night. And in the dream, she found herself at the palace. And at the palace, there was this beautiful tall lady in a long sort of blue Grecian dress who kept saying, Mary, you've got to keep the baby, important baby, you got to keep the baby. My mother called her Blue Dell. She said, well, I know Blue Dell, but my husband is, that. oh, ignore him. <laughs> you've got to keep the baby. And so I got born. I mean, two months early, but I got born, you know. And I discovered that this particular archetype has been part of my life. It's allowed me to work with UN and related agencies in over a hundred countries, helping cultures become communities of possibility, as you describe, and doing all this strange work that I've done for so many years in the world. And there's just many other things. Uh, she is a goddess of wisdom. She is a character of co-creation with humans in the world to have them go deeper and, uh, and explore 
the diversity of selves that allows them to, to be all that they can be. It goes on and on. So my archetype is the Athena archetype. Now, it's not that I believe that I am Athena, but I am certainly attached to the energy of that particular archetype. Wonderful. I love that. I love that. Brilliant. Brilliant. I guess I have yet to figure out what my archetype is, but I will certainly say that I see in Power of Eight groups, I always challenge our groups to write the future for each other because people do. And it's a, a Japanese author discovered this, that people, when you have a pair of people, somebody can map your future, somebody else better than you can. And so I've now done this in groups and I find that suddenly it brings out the greatness in individuals. It brings out that mythic quality because people can't see it in themselves. They see the humdrum everyday persona that you talk about and they don't see the mythic side that you also talk about. And so that is one, another advantage of a group. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. We have so much more, of course, to talk about with this topic. Jean and I. What is your new book? Tell everybody uh, about it. I'm not going to tell anybody anything about it yet, Jean. It's in gestation. Um, it's going to be a new field. It's going to be a new, as my book, The Field, was, this is a real, this is a new version of, and a completely different um, batch of information that I hope will spin everybody in a new direction. But it's just at the beginnings. But <clears throat> before we leave you, Jean, do you have any courses you want to tell people about um, or yes. where people yes. can get you? Yes, yes and yes. And you just go to my regular word uh, website, which is Jean Houston, one word, Jean Houston, dot com. And you'll see a whole bevy of courses <laughs> that are out there. Wonderful. Some brand new ones starting tomorrow, as a matter of fact. On, uh, um, oh, fantastic. And um, I am my, my sorry. It's up there, HTTPS slash www. JeanHouston.com. Wonderful, wonderful. And that's what we'll be writing that also on the chat. And for people who want to find out more about my intention masterclasses, my big one, the Power of Eight Intention Masterclass, my keynote course of the year is starting on February 4th. I put people through intention boot camp through live and interactive sessions, six of those. And then I put you in a group in your own time zone and your own preferred meeting time and you meet with them every week for a year. You also have ongoing intention clinics with me. So I do a lot of coaching to help everybody really master all of the techniques and the group in the year. And these people will become your intention family and they'll be part of essentially helping you to create and be a new human. So check that out on my website, lynnmctaggart.com under courses. Jean, it's been fabulous as always. I think we could talk for three more hours. So <laughs> let's do that. Let's definitely do it again. But in the meantime, be well, dear friend. Be well, you too. My dear, dear friend, you have really 
you are the one person more than anybody that I can think of who is helping the world to turn the corner. Thank you so much. Right back at you, I think. And you've been doing it for gener for a couple of generations. <laughs> All right. Goodbye, everybody. Bye, Thank bye. you for listening. Bye.